So this one is something I don't talk about too often. So, but it's called a 721 exchange. So in a 721 exchange, you're able to, so you're able to uh, put real estate into a partnership and get an interest in the partnership and that's non-taxable. So if you have a piece of highly appreciated real estate, you could, again, just, you could, con could uh, excuse me, contribute that to a partnership and you'll get the interest in the partnership. Now, dude, this is used for is people will usually contribute the property to a, um, to a partnership that rolls up into a REIT that ultimately, so it ultimately rolls up into a REIT. So the partnerships that do that, the, the REITs that do this, basically you contribute your office building. They probably already own office buildings like yours. And that's the reason why they're doing this. And now all of a sudden you're getting effectively an interest in the REIT where now you don't have to manage it. You don't have to, you don't have to worry about all those headaches. You have a passive investment. Um, but that this is a more complicated, rare strategy. But with an office building, it's more likely you'll be able to execute this with an office building and a single family house. So this is why it makes sense for 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 people to get educated on this strategy, where again, you roll it up into a REIT effectively tax-free. This is the Providers, Properties, and Performance Podcast, the podcast that brings together leaders in healthcare and investment real estate to consider the possibilities in future at the intersection of practicing medicine and healthcare real estate investment returns. Welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance Podcast. I am your host, Trisha Talbot. As a healthcare real estate advisor to providers and investors, the best solutions occur when the two collaborate together as partners in delivering better patient care. Providers can deliver care to their patients when and where they need it, and investors realize the returns to build and manage facilities. We explore changes in medicine and wellness, the future of healthcare, and using real estate as a strategic and financial tool. Today's episode is with CPA Thomas Castelli to discuss tax strategies with real estate ownership. We dive into specific strategies for physician-owned properties and planning your tax strategy approach for your property ownership hold period. We touch on appreciation, depreciation or cost recovery, and strategically using leverage. So Thomas, welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. Thank you, Trisha, for having me here. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here today. So you're a CPA and you focus on real estate tax strategies. You want to tell me a little bit about your background and how you ended up where you are? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, when I was uh, growing up, my parents always encouraged me to go to school for accounting. So um, that's kind of how I ended up in college for accounting. And while I was in college for accounting, I started to realize, okay, if I really wanted to get to where I want to go in life, uh, I'm going to need to start investing that's that was the theme and uh so i picked up the rich dad poor dad books while i was in college i stumbled upon real estate and really started reading as much as i could so the year i graduated college i went to an, a real estate event where i learned about uh real estate syndication that's when you buy like apartment complexes or office buildings and you raise money and this is isn't it's an entire business and i really fell in love with that strategy so when I started my first job in accounting, it was at a firm called BDO, which is like a top 10 accounting firm, national, a really, really, really cool job, really good people. But while I was there, I realized that, you know, audit really wasn't my thing. So I were auditing big companies. So I ended up exploring um, the options to get out of that into like small business accounting and tax. So that's ended up how I, how I how I met my partner Brandon, who uh, at the who has who started the firm where I work at now, and that's how I kind of got on the path of being a tax strategist for real estate investors. Now, 
while that was all going on, I was like on on the side of doing all this, building up my network to uh, start investing because I really wanted to be this real estate sponsor or syndicator. Uh, so I started investing as a limited partner in a bunch of multifamily deals with someone who would eventually become my mentor. And he always told me, he goes, look, if you find a deal um, that I don't find, we'll syndicate it. It's assuming the deal makes sense, of course. So I started, you know, picking up the phones, calling brokers. I ended up finding a deal. It was an 82 unit apartment complex in Jacksonville, Florida. So we ended up syndicating it um, in 2017, sold it at the height of the pandemic, which was a very interesting <laughs> situation. Right. But so that's kind of how I got, you know, on the investing side. And then also how I got in, you know, into where I'm at being a tax strategist for real estate investors on, you know, being a CPA. So it's kind of very synergistic how it all came together and kind of fed into each other. And uh, now, now I have a team of advisors and we advise uh, clients on how to minimize taxes through real estate investing. So um, I've had other CPAs on the podcast and they've mentioned, you know, the tax strategies where for my target audience of physician owners owning the properties uh, where they practice, but, you know, moving W-2 income over to investment income with a lease and on all of that. But what I wanted to pick your brain about is going to, you know, discussing tax strategies associated with owning a property versus leasing, you know, surrounding appreciation, depreciation, and then strategically using leverage and how that combined with owning the property in an LLC and then, you know, the practice paying the LLC rent and and all of that. Right, right. So, okay. So let me break this down. I'll right. Start, this, Please. This, exactly. There's a lot, there's a lot that goes into this. So <laughs> For the first thing to to uh, realize or the first concept to understand is the difference between passive activities and non-passive activities. So underneath the tax code, um, this was put in, into place under the Tax Reform Act of 1986. Um, there's passive activities um, are include all rental activities by default are considered passive. And then there's businesses in which you where you don't where you're not actively involved the term is called materially participating, but you know if, if you're <laughs> passive, you're just the money partner. Chances are you're you're passive. So again, all re rental real estates are is passive by default, and then businesses could also be passive. Now, businesses in which you are actively involved in are non-passive, and uh, so is say a W two job, right? That those are both non non-passive sources of income. That the downside or the bad thing is that losses from rental activities which are passive cannot offset the non-passive income unless you're a real estate professional or you use short-term rentals or you use what i'm about to talk about right now which is why i had to introduce all of this first right. so when you own a medical practice and you buy an associated building um usually your attorneys are going to strongly advise you not to put the building in the same llc as the um as your medical practice, because for liability reasons, and I'm not an attorney, I can't discuss that, but that's right. what tell you. so <laughs> what, what commonly happens is you, you'll have someone buy the building through an LLC and then rent it back to, and then rent it to their medical practice. The challenge that that creates is it's a rental activity. So you'll have this building with all this depreciation, which can be accelerated um, with through some things I'll talk about in a little bit. Um, but you can't use those losses against the, the, the income from the medical practice because it's a passive activity and the medical practice is presumably a non-passive activity. So there's an election, there's an exception to this way around this, 
It's an election under Section 1.469-4, and it allows you to group your rental activity with your medical practice or your operating business, but medical practice counts. So there you go um, there. And uh, as long as each owner is the same in each entity. Uh, so in other words, if you're 100% owner of the medical practice and you own 100% of the building or the LLC that owns the building, rather, you make this grouping election, what happens is effectively your building becomes part of your medical practice and uh, for tax purposes, not legally. Um, and then uh, you could take the losses from your rental property or from your office building that you own against the income from your medical practice. And is a relatively common strategy that people use. And that's that's one of the big benefits of owning the building versus, say, leasing a building is that you can accelerate uh, your depreciation expense and take these big losses against your your non-passive income you're getting from the medical practice. And how does that work if, um, so say it's a partnership of four doctors and they, but they own, they all are on the same, they all own the property and they all own the practice. Does that still work or does it have to be one solo practitioner? So, so that, that works. The key, the key in the regulations is that each owner has the same percentage ownership interest in both activities um, for us to work. And I was speaking to one of my advisors uh, today before before this podcast, and they mentioned that there might be a way around that. So the only reason I'm saying that is it's something that if you don't have proportional uh, interest, go speak to your advisors about that. They might be able to find a way around it. I can't say there's a 100% way, but I do know that it 100% works if you are proportional owners. You own the same pro rata, basically. Very nice. And then, so talk about depreciation and you talked about a lot of things like accelerating um, depreciation, which which some may be familiar with and some may not. So can you explain that for the audience? Yeah, absolutely. So when you buy an office building, it's going to be depreciated over 39 years. So for, you know, basically this is rounded to 40 for the sake of- e- I think it's 39 and a half to be exact, right? Yes, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's something like that, right? So, you know, just think about that over that period, one thirty ninth or one thirty ninth and right. a half is going to be depreciated, right? Over uh, each year. That's a long time. Now there's different components of the building, right? The building isn't just, you know, the walls, right? You have various different, uh, you have, I'm trying to think of an office building because I don't think about these too often, but you're going to have like, office equipment, you're going to have uh, furniture, you're going to have all these different things. FF&E, right. <laughs> exactly. All <laughs> these different things that are within the building itself. And these things have different class lives. So what you would do is typically you would have a cost segregation study performed. The cost segregation is just somebody, an engineer comes to your property and breaks down these various components and segregates them out into different class lives. So you typically have five, seven and 15 year property. And the, the five, seven, and 15 year property is eligible for something. Well, first, let me, before I go there, let me break this down. First of all, the five, seven, and 15 year property is normally depreciated over five, seven, and 15 years, which is a lot shorter uh, than 39 years. So you're recovering your costs much more quickly. Now, to add an e- e- even better thing on top of all of this, there's something called bonus depreciation. And bonus depreciation allows you to completely depreciate. Um, property with a class life of 20 years, all in the first year that you acquire the property. And so usually somewhere between 20 and 30% of the property's value can be allocated into this five, seven and 15 year property. Um, So that allows you to significantly 
increase that depreciation expense. And you know, the best thing about depreciation is it's non-cash. So I always like to give this example, and you know, this is going to be a little bit different for the medical practices. But say you have, uh, let's just say you have five hundred thousand dollars of income from the medical practice, and uh, you have, you know, I don't know. Let's just say you have. I'm just pulling a number out of a hat. You have, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the number right now, but let's just say you have $200,000 of expenses, right? Well, now you have $300,000 of income. Now those $200,000 of expenses, you know, salaries and stuff you have to pay out, that money actually left your pocket, right? And that took cash flow away from you. Well, depreciation is non-cash. So you might have, say, a $300,000 depreciation expense thanks to bonus depreciation, and now you're sitting at a $100,000 tax loss despite the fact that you really generate $300,000 in, in cash flow from your business. So that's really a kind of an illustration of the power of depreciation and really what bonus depreciation can do for you. To mitigate your tax liability. Right. It reduces your tax liability. Right. Right. So talk about... um you know, strategically using leverage to, you know, as a tax strategy as well. Cause some, I know a lot of people are like, I don't want debt. I want to pay all this off, but what are some of the strategies for using leverage? Right. Right. So if you're in a, if you're in a growing market, or even if you're in just a stable market, you know, your property is going to be increasing in value over time. Uh, you could also increase the value of your property by making renovations and, and things like that to the property to force the, the value of the property to go up. And what happens is, and also as you kind of pay down the loan you have on the property, uh, you're also going to be increasing your equity. So all of this yeah, increases your equity in the property. And one of the best things about real estate is that the it's an asset that's very easy to collateralize, right? You go to the bank, banks are very nor, uh, very used to uh, putting mortgages on properties or putting you know HELOCs or lines of credit on a, against the property. So you can actually go and and as your equity grows go to the bank and take a loan against your property and use it to buy other things or fund, you know, maybe it's to expand your medical practice. Maybe it's to buy another building. Maybe it's to, to use it for other reasons. Whatever the purpose is, you're able to tap into that equity and take loans out against the property very easily with real estate. And it's other assets just aren't, there aren't many other assets that's easy just to go to the bank and just get a loan in the way that you can with real estate. Right. And then, you know, and obviously having an interest payment decreases your tax liability. Right, right. So the interest is going to be tax deductible. Um, so that, that of course, decreases your taxable income and thus the amount of money you pay, the amount of taxes you're going to have to right. pay. Right. I just want to make sure that we connect the dots so that all of this ends up at their bottom line by reducing their tax liability. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Just let, let me let me say something. I, I kind of blanked on that one, the interest for a second. So the interest, um, I just want to say it is tax deductible if you use it for business purposes, right? If you go and you take that interest, you go and you you do a cash out refinance or you go and get a, a line of credit against your your office building, you go buy a Corvette or a Ferrari or something like that and use it for personal purposes. There's something called the interest tracing rules that say that the debt is categorized, however, well, excuse me, the interest on the debt is categorized, however, the debt proceeds are used. So that would be personal purposes. So in that case, the Ferrari or the Corvette, that's not going to be tax deductible. However, if you did use it to buy another building or to expand um, your medical practice or pay expenses for your medical practice or whatever the case may be for business purposes, then it will be tax deductible. But if it's used for personal reasons, it's not tax deductible. 
and this is to clarify. So this is not um, a mortgage interest. So mortgage interest, you know, is different. What you're talking about is taking debt on a property that either may be paid off or has a huge amount of equity into it. And you're trying to get some cash out to strategically use the leverage on top of or in place of uh, an actual mortgage. Absolutely. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Okay. So I do a lot of uh, what's called sale leasebacks. You know, let's say let's say that a physician owner has owned a property, and they're saying, you know what, a um, couple things. We're either, you know, we want to get the the proceeds out of the market's great. So we're at, we're at a top of a market type of thing, and and they say, look, I, which is, you know, they're at the top of a market for selling, and then they they need to go and buy something, but they could buy something that maybe needs a little bit of work. So you know, they decide, hey, you know what, I'm, we're going to put a 10-year lease on this and then we're going to sell the property to an investor. We're going to get the proceeds now and then we're going to either expand our practice or we're just looking to cash out because we have different partners at different ages and stages and, you know, we want to sell the real estate. And there's a variety of reasons, strategic reasons to do a sale lease back. These are just two examples. You know, um, a lot of them, all of a sudden, they're like, well, what am I going to do? Because I do not want all of these proceeds because... I don't want to pay taxes on all of it. It's going to be a huge bill and I don't want to write that check. I mean, and pay Uncle Sam what he needs, but is there other things that I can do in order to defer or convert or, you know, reduce my tax liability? Well, there there is, and it all depends on kind of what your goals are for that money. Um, if you're going to use it, say, pay partners um, to e- have them exit the practice or whatever the case may be, it's going to be challenging to find a tax deferred way to kind of defer that money. No, um, I'm not talking about paying partners off. I'm just saying, you know, it might be a partnership that owns the real estate, but they're in different ages and stages. They just want to cash out of the real estate. Okay. They're not looking to be bought out of the partnership. Okay. So there's, there's a lot, there's, there's a, there's a few things that can be done. Okay. So the first thing is I'm going to break some of them down. Right. Some of them can be more complex than others. And you can so, give examples too. So, cause this is a lot of information and without, some context is sometimes hard to get. Okay. So I have a few that are going to involve real estate that you're going to have to manage. And then another one that you can exit the real estate and not have to manage real estate. So this is okay. So the first one's a 1031 exchange. Um, so real estate can be, ex- so you can sell a property and you can defer the capital gains tax um, and depreciation recapture tax. If anybody is concerned about that by by buying another property, but you have to roll over generally this the entire sales proceeds and replace whatever mortgage is on the property. So in other words, you're gonna have to buy another piece of real estate. So you can sell the medical practice, excuse me, sell the office building and buy another office building somewhere else. You could buy another a multifamily property, you could buy whatever type of re- rental real estate you want and kind of continue kicking that can down the road. Well, and Tom, if- can't you also buy like two properties as long as it equals the proceeds right right okay. it is possible to buy multiple properties right. the bottom line is you have to use the, the entire sales proceeds and replace the mortgage if you okay. don't do those two things um, and there are some nuances in there but if you don't do those two things you generally you're generally going to have what's known as taxable boot and that boot is going to be taxed at capital gains rates typically and uh so that's kind of what happens if you don't use the entire sales proceeds right. but it could be one property it could be uh, several properties that you put that you kind of spread the money around but the point is with the 1031 exchange kind of the bottom line is you're able to defer the taxes but you're you're buying into more real property more real right. estate right perfect um, 
there's another one. There's another alternative version of that where you actually buy another property and you use a cost segregation study to generate this bonus depreciation from that other property and use the losses from that from the new property to offset the gain on the sale of the old property. It's kind of like it's it's like a 1031 exchange, but it's a way around a 1031 exchange. But in that case, too, you're still buying real property. Now, this one, I think, is going to be interesting for some people. So this one is something I don't talk about too often. So, but it's called a 721 exchange. So in a 721 exchange, you're able to, so you're able to uh, put real estate into a partnership and it get an interest in the partnership and that's non-taxable. So if you have a piece of highly appreciated real estate, you could, again, just, you could contribute that to a partnership and you'll get the interest in the partnership. Now, dude, this is used for is people will usually contribute the property to a um, to a partnership that rolls up into a REIT that ultimately so it ultimately rolls up into a REIT. So the partnerships that do that, the, the REITs that do this, basically, you contribute your office building. They probably already own office buildings like yours, and that's the reason why they're doing this. And now all of a sudden, you're getting effectively an interest in the REIT, where now you don't have to manage it, you don't have to you don't have to worry about all those headaches. You have a passive investment. Um, but that this is a more complicated, rare strategy. But with an office building, it's more likely you'll be able to execute this with an office building than a single family house. So this is why it makes sense for 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 people to get educated on this strategy, where again, you roll it up into a REIT effectively tax free. And then when you sell the REIT shares, you start to recognize your capital gain a little by little. But you know, usually with a REIT, usually with REIT shares, you have a lot of them. Um, right. And you don't have to sell them all at one time. So you could sell right. a little bit here, a little bit there, you know, year over year, and you're not going to recognize this gigantic capital gain that you would probably recognize if you just sold the building outright. And you can you can strategically use it in years where you know you may have a loss that you can then you know have a gain, and it sort of makes your net tax liability more manageable than right. If you were right. to just take it all at once. Right. And I have another one too, while we're actually talking about. Yeah, no. And wait, before game. we move on though, that's called almost, that's an upreit, what you just described. Right. Yeah. Right. right and that's, right. that's something that um, a lot of the REITs, some of the REITs, but you know, there are REITs in the healthcare real estate asset class that do do that. Yeah. You know, I've, I, I've seen only one of them actually done because I just only seen one of them actually transact in my life, but I do know it's a very popular strategy for office buildings. So right. something to explore. Um, the other one is an installment sale. Um, so an installment sale, basically what happens in installment sale is instead of the um, the seller, the buyer, excuse me, going to the bank and getting a loan, they take the loan, you carry the note back. So in other words, you sell the property to the end buyer and you get usually some cash for the down payment and then you get this note. And then basically as the buyer pays back the note, they're going to start... Um, each year, you're going to recognize the capital gain little by little as they pay it off. So in other words, you're not having to recognize the capital gain all in one year. You're able to spread that capital gain out over several years. And this can be important if you're trying to stay under certain income thresholds and or you just don't want to take that big hit all in one year. And an additional benefit to this actually is you get to put a piece of you usually put interest on it, too. So you're also going to get a interest um, income in the form of interest. So it's another another nice little perk of doing an installment sale. Installment sales are relatively common um, because they do allow you to spread that capital gains tax out. And people like that when they're exiting a property and want a source of income. Absolutely. 
and you can agree or not, but in all of these, like if you're going to do, if you're going to become a bank for a a buyer, you really need to have an attorney help you because you need, you need some legal documents. Right, right. When it comes to legal documents, you know, I, I always recommend when it comes to legal documents, hire an attorney, have it done right the first way. And the reason right. why I say that is I've seen a lot of entity structures. I've seen a lot of different agreements in my in my in my time working as a CPA. And it's a lot more costly and painful to go back and try to fix something if it can <laughs> if it can be fixed in the first place. Right. Um, than it is to, to get it done right. And some people try to, you know, cut costs by, oh, I'm going to go on, uh, you know, one of these cookie cutter websites and grab an, uh, a promissory note, but you realize you didn't do it the right way or it's not filled out and now it's not legally binding or it's not what you intended. It's just hire an attorney. That's my two cents there. Right. Exactly. They, they pay for themselves. Right. Okay, so uh, we're going to move into the the Q and A and get to know you part of the the podcast. So, what was your first job? So, my first job, my first uh, my first job was in high school, and I worked at uh, a place called Shoprite. I was a cashier. That's my first job. My first real job, I guess you could say, uh, was at BDO as an audit uh, associate at BDO. Very nice. And what else do you think you would be doing for a living? If I wasn't doing this, I would. It's a good question. I would probably be even doing one or two things. I'd either be a real estate agent and have a brokerage, or I would be in tech doing something tech related. Anyway, what or who are you reading or listening to right now for news, information, or inspiration? Okay, for news, uh, Bloomberg. Um, I have a subscription to Bloomberg that I really like. And as for inspiration, there's a gentleman named Alex Hermosi, um, and he has a wife. Her name is Layla Hermosi. Uh, they built they built and sold the company for like a hundred million dollars. And everything that they put out on the internet, um, books, everything, podcast is super valuable, super powerful, unlike anything that like anybody else is putting out. So really? Yeah. How do you spell that? Um, it's H O R M O Z I. And what is one thing you do every day for healthy self-care? Uh Every day. I mean, I brush my teeth. No, I mean, but no, in all seriousness, I, I, I have a, I'm I big into fitness. I go to the gym probably six days a week at this point. Um, so it's not every day, but I go to the gym frequently enough. I can almost say that. So that's what I do. Big into fitness, big into dieting um, and uh, just controlling the way I eat, controlling, you know, what I put into my body. So do you think leaders are born or trained? Uh, trained, trained. I mean, I, I think that some people have a natural inclination towards it. But I think that is definitely trained or learned on the job, if you will. Not they don't come out being able to lead. No, no. <laughs> well, Thomas, this has been a great interview. I appreciate your time. I think it was a lot of super helpful information that a lot of the audience will bump into <clears throat> being uh, real estate owners. And it's really good to go into real estate knowing a lot of these strategies instead of figuring them out after yeah. <laughs> yeah if i could just say one more thing i would say please don't take what you've learned here on this podcast and just <laughs> run with it please speak with your advisors because there's always <laughs> there's always a lot more nuances than we can cover on a podcast episode so please talk to your advisor before just well, straight implementing it everybody's situation is different everyone's tax situation is different there is not a one-size-fits-all so everyone has to you know based on 
their entire, you know, landscape of tax liability, they need to speak with somebody that hopefully is doing their taxes or, you know, familiar with it to advise right. them. Perfect. Right. Well, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm grateful for you tuning in to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast with others. As a disclaimer, this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and not intended for specific real estate investment advice.